This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We know and you all know why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's VP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with credit-worthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 172. So the magic is that once you close a deal with a broker and they, they perceive that you're able to do more deals, mm-hmm. then they start bringing you the off-market stuff. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Turner. What's going on, man? Hey, how are you, Josh? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Did you hear about Bodie McBoatface? I heard the <laughs> reference to Bodie McBoatface, but I don't quite know exactly the, what it was. This is the best story ever. So uh, the national was the National Environmental Research Council over in the UK. 
uh-huh. decided to have a naming contest for their massive, big $300 million research boat. Right. <laughs> so they're like, we want you to present names. So like they did all these, like a lot of people presented nice names of like people like who had cancer or cured cancer or whatever, you know, like all these like important things. And sure. then somebody suggested the name Bodie Boatface. <laughs> and as the internet does, that one overwhelmingly won. Uh, nice. So now the UK is now when this podcast comes out, maybe they would have decided what they're going to do, but they don't know what to do because overwhelmingly everybody says Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> to our listeners, I'm going to float Bodie McBoatface for president of the United States. So I'm going to ask you to write in Bodie McBoatface. That would be actually really clearly funny. he's going to be better of a candidate <laughs> than any of the guys and gals. That That's actually a funny running. idea. We make a campaign to write in Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger pockets uh, sabotages U.S. election. That would be amazing. What would that he do? Would, I don't know. They would, I, you know, people would get mad at us. <laughs> Probably. Good job, Turner. Way to screw up America. I know. I try. Anyway, so what, besides Bodie McBoatface, what you been up to? Snow. Okay, just, you got uh, snow. Yeah, we're like weird spring storms. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, mid-April, and we had like a, a foot of snow in Denver, uh, up in the foothills. They in the mountains, they had over four feet in That's some crazy. places. So. It's been crazy, but yeah, things are good, man. Spring is here. It's beautiful. Things are going great here at Bigger Pockets. We got lots of uh, cool milestones happening in and around now in the time that the show will come out, which is kind of exciting. 500,000 members. Yeah, huge. Big. Two million, two million forum posts. It's just, it's crazy. So things, things are going really well. And obviously the podcast continues to blow up, which, which we should, oh, I, was gonna say, I think we probably, by the time the show comes out, we, we will have, or we'll be very close to 2000 reviews on iTunes, which oh, yeah, is it's very close because we're at like 1990 right now or something. So, you know, if you've not yet left a review, please do so. We want to hit 3000. We're always raising the bar. So, oh yeah. Nice. Nice. Speaking of that, let's, let's get to today's all right, today's quick tip is the Bigger Pockets podcast is now available on the Google Play Store. Yay. So, for those of you who didn't know, Google has decided that they actually need to need to get into the podcast game, and and uh, they they realize how much people enjoy and and want to consume podcasts. So, uh, they now have a native player as part of the Google Play Store, and the Bigger Pockets podcast is available. So, as of the time that we are recording this. If you actually search for Bigger Pockets, you cannot find it. However, we have direct links to it. So if you go to biggerpockets.com slash podcast, you'll see a link to it to the Google Play Store. Hopefully by the time this thing goes live, if you search for Bigger Pockets on the Google Play Store, you'll find the podcast. But if not, again, go to biggerpockets.com slash podcast and you'll find a link to the Bigger Pockets podcast on the Google Play Store. And for those of you guys who are listening on the Google Play Store, Please leave us a rating and review. We are at a grand total of zero. zero. And so yes. we would love to get your support and we'd love for you to jump in there and leave us one. And uh, that is today's quick tip. Wonderful quick tip. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm going to go out and play in the sun. So we should probably finish up this intro. Let's do it. We can get to the, uh, to the uh, interview, which today's interview is awesome, by the way. Yes. If you guys want to buy large properties someday, if you want to break into that industry, this is the show for you. Uh, you guys are going to learn a ton about what it takes to actually get into a large multifamily property. Pretty cool stuff. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. You know what? We sit here. I drink a ton of water <laughs> every show. I'm always thirsty. I'm always just parts. And I know Brandon is too. And we're always looking for... You know, just something to drink. So if you are somehow connected 
We we have a request of of you, our community. We are looking for a drink sponsor for the Bigger Pockets podcast, so we can it's like Red Bull, here. but like you know how Red Bull sponsors people. Yeah, yeah, we need, yeah. Like, I mean, Brandon wants. I know that guy wants Starbucks. Oh, this, we should I Starbucks want iced tea us. of some sort or whatever. But like, yeah, if you if you uh, <laughs> rep or are part of a one of the drink companies and you're listening, we would love some kind of drink sponsor. We'd love to give shout outs to any company that's going to help us from being parched. Preferably so. not hard liquor, because then we'll be drunk doing the podcast. <laughs> this is Josh Dorgan. Big thanks to our sponsor, John's Malt Liquor. <laughs> All right, let's get yeah, to this show. <laughs> let's get to today's show. Today's guest is Jonathan Twombly. Jonathan is a real estate investor from the Brooklyn, New York area. And Jonathan has taken a completely unique path to yeah. starting in real estate, one that we have uh, we have not spoken to somebody who's done yet. He decided to, let's just say, skip from the, the minors straight to the majors from like elementary school. He he took a big leap and it's a fascinating story. And, you know, he's done a great job and, and he's doing really, really well. And, you know, it's fascinating and really cool. And, and you know, we definitely don't recommend it for everybody, but it, it does work for some folks, what he did. And and so he, he really just jumped into large multifamilies from nothing. So it's a fascinating story. Listen up and let's get to it right away. All right, Jonathan, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you here. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, this should be fun today, talking a little bit uh, advanced stuff. Again, another one of those episodes where I asked somebody to be on the show or we asked them because I want to learn more about a topic. Now, that's how this thing works. Is uh, I, It's my selfish podcast. You are greedy as hell. We should just <laughs> nickname this like the Brandon podcast and then just forget about BP, right, Josh? Good? No? <laughs> <laughs> He's just staring at me. All right, Jonathan, let's hear yes. your story. This is actually the Jonathan. Yeah, this is the Bigger Pockets podcast. It's the Jonathan co-host. Oh, he was just fired. So we're gonna start with, hey, Jonathan, what's up, man? No, I right, go ahead, Brandon. All right, I'll take the first question, <laughs> Jonathan. How did you get started investing in real estate? Well, that's. You said you like stories. This is a pretty long story, actually. How I got involved in this. I love just, it. Uh, so my career was in real. Uh, sorry, in law. I was a lawyer for a long, long time. Twelve years. Did we not vet this guy, by the way? <laughs> yeah. Well, not anymore. Hey, uh, you know, you can have your lawyer hostility and put that to the side because okay. I'm, uh, I'm no longer practicing law. Oh. So yeah. So I was practicing law. You know, big firm law stuff in New York City for for many years, trying you know repeatedly to get out of it, and uh, unsuccessfully. Every time I quit, they would pull me back in. Mm. So the last part of my career, I was actually doing real estate related laws and became more and more interested in real estate itself as a possible way to get out of being a lawyer. Uh, it has always been something that was sort of on my mind, but I never really thought I could make a career out of it. And naturally, given my kind of you know bent from working at big firms, I sort of assumed that what I would do if I did go into real estate was work for some institution, you know, doing, uh, you know, buying billion-dollar properties for somebody else. I started doing a lot of networking, trying to figure out how I could crack into that industry and was sort of running into the same kind of thing as with finance, with people saying like, hey, you know, at your age, good luck. Good luck with that. You know, That's ageist. Well, you know, your, your background, whatever. You know, they, were, they were like, hey, you know, no, no 30-year-old manager at one of these places is going to want to hire a 40-year-old guy with kids and then tell him he's got to work late. You know, it's it's just the the way things are. I got actually laid off from my law job. I'd been sitting around for a while with nothing to do, and I, you know, I saw it coming. I just frankly thought it was going to happen a lot sooner than it did. But 
the um, I thought, you know, what am I going to do now? I was continuing to do my networking with real estate. And one day I met with uh, an older acquaintance of mine, actually someone who was even older than me. Was that possible? It was. <laughs> well, it's, it's wow. hard to believe. It? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, who said to me, look, Jonathan, I'm just going to give it to you straight. Like, there is no way you were ever going to break into real estate in this town, period. So just give it up. Oh. And he didn't, he didn't quite say give it up, but what he said was, he said, look, you're, no one's going to hire you at one of these institutions. The, the only way you're going to break into this field is if you get lucky. And if somebody just takes a liking to you and says, hey, why don't you be my partner? So with that in mind, I was out talking to people that I was meeting and basically trying to talk to everybody I could meet in real estate. And lo and behold, someone said to me, hey, I'm starting a real estate investment firm. How'd you like to be my partner? So, you know, I was like, I don't really know anything about this. She said, you know, well, look, you're a smart guy. You can figure it out. I think she thought that I could raise money. That was why she, she wanted to partner up with me. Nice. And she was right because what happened was, you know, not being the kind of person to jump on things very quickly. I always want to do my due diligence. I started asking friends whether they thought this was a good idea. And a couple of my friends said, well, let me meet her, right? If I, if I like her, I'll give you money to invest. So I introduced her to a couple of my friends. They both can I, like Can this. I interrupt you really quickly? Yeah. So these are people who know you, yeah. who know that you don't know your head from your, you know what, in real estate, yep. who don't even care about what kind of deals you have. All they want to know is, do, you, have you, do they like the person that you've put your judgment into and do they trust that person? Yeah, basically. I mean, they okay. they trusted my judgment. Yeah. They knew that I was not the kind of person who was going to jump off the handle and right. rush, you know, headlong into something. They what they wanted to check out was how well they thought she understood real estate and they were both happy with what she said. Right. She did she had a bunch of experience in it. She and her husband owned a bunch of property and you know, she wanted to go out on her own with this, which is why she was talking to me about it. But as it turned out, they both liked her. They both said, well, look, if you want to do this, we have, we have money for you to invest. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I better do this because now I've got an offer of a partnership. I've got an offer of money. And my friend Richard has already told me, like, good luck, buddy. You're never going to break into this business. Unless <laughs> so we're going to stick it to Richard partner. right here, right? <laughs> well, no, I, mean, I, no I, I, have to, I have to be really thankful for, for what Richard said because he, if he had not said that, I, I probably would not have taken that offer mm. and who knows okay. what I'd be doing now. I mean, it okay. was a real catalyst for me. So that was playing in the back of my head. So I thought, you know what? The, the universe is telling me something. I should, I should go for this and just see where this goes. So I was going to say, so uh, your first deal, I, w- I wanted to ask you about that. And I, mean, I know you're going to get there, but it was like a $10,000 house in Detroit, right? I mean, it was a real small deal you started like with. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, no. So Life is life is funny, right? Life has a way of like thrusting you into situations, at least in my life, I mean, where you you know, you don't know what the heck you're doing. Yeah. And you gotta figure it out. And you start off somewhere and you think, okay, well that's what this business is all about. So even though one of the people who I partner with now, we were looking at threeplexes, you know, like I said, up in Albany or in Newburgh, New York, you know, kind of hundred thousand dollar houses. And we did that. And that's what I always thought I was going to wind up doing. I thought I'd assemble a portfolio of, you know, these three plexes and four plexes and stuff. 
as it happened when I got into it with my former partner, she and her husband owned, you know, 700 units of multifamily and it was like maybe five or six properties. So they owned big things. That was what she was used to, to buying. And she just kind of launched into like, well, this is what we're going to do. As it happened, you know, the guys who were offering me money were offering pretty substantial amounts of money to invest so we could afford to go out and buy those kinds of properties. So that's what we started out looking at. That's what I learned how to do. I learned how to underwrite those deals. And I, I didn't really know any better. Like I didn't know that that's not the way that most people start out. I just right. thought, okay, this is what it is. So here's a, here's a quick tip. I think for for everybody listening, go find some rich people and <laughs> just start buying big big properties. No, just it, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work. So I mean, you're in a a fairly unique situa- situation, which absolutely, which is awesome. I'm you know, and, and which is why we want to talk about it. really quick before we move forward. You talked about Newburgh and some of these other areas of New York, upstate. Again, this goes to what we talk about all the time on the show. You get a lot of folks who are like, "Well, I don't know. I live in Manhattan." And I want to invest in real estate, but I can't buy Manhattan real estate. I can't afford it. I can't afford Queens or, you know, Westchester County or Nassau County real estate. But, you know, if you go two hours out of your area, if you drive a hundred miles, you can find properties for reasonable amounts of money. And, and so, you know, whether you're in LA, in New York, San Francisco, anywhere, there's always affordable property within some reasonable drive. Just wanted to kind of point that out to folks because you know we we do hear that so often. Yeah, absolutely. And even even with what we're doing, you know, we invest in the Carolinas. We're not investing in New York, right? On. For the same reason. I mean, you know, whatever level you're looking at, whether it's you know a hundred thousand dollar house or a five million dollar property, if you live in a really high cost place like New York City or San Francisco or you know uh, name a market the chances are you're going to have to look outside and yeah. and I think and just you know on the New York theme I know a number of people who have invested in places like Troy New York and love it and swear by it and say that yeah. you know it's a terrific market and it's not that far from here it's a 2, two hour drive from New York so you can absolutely yep. get to places where you can afford even from from New York it's it's go. another state. It's called Upstate New York. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not really <laughs> the real New York. But all right. So let, let let's get back to this this business at hand, which is you've got all this money, you got a partner, and you're going to go and do your first deal. So tell us wh- what was that first deal? How did that come together? Um, you said the Carolinas. So uh, you know how did well, you end up? It's actually a long story before even getting to the Carolinas. Not so. another one. Another long story. This is just going to be a day of really, really long, boring stories. Hold on. Let me get my pillow. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So here's what happened. My old partner, she and her husband already owned, they owned like one building in the Bronx, but everything else they owned was in Louisiana and Texas. So that's where we started looking. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely true what they say that if you were a new investor, it doesn't really matter how much money you have. Because if you haven't closed deals already and you're not known in the marketplace, it's very difficult to break in. So even though you know we had we could provide proof of funds for deals, we had a very difficult time trying to get kind of sort of break into the broker community and get them yeah. to show us deals that that made sense. I mean, they were perfectly happy to show us all of their junk that they couldn't sell and hope that we were foolish enough to just buy something. You know, we were more disciplined than that, fortunately. So we spent the better part of a year looking for a deal. And the first deal that we moved on or that we find, I think we made an offer on a couple 
the first deal that we finally got under contract was one that we'd actually seen months before at kind of a ridiculous price. And the owner finally got sensible and dropped the price to a point where it made sense. And so we got that deal under contract. And then within a very short period of time thereafter, we got a second deal with the same seller in a different city. And these were both in Louisiana. So one was in a town called Homa, which is outside of New Orleans, and the other was in Lafayette. So, you know, we went from, from zero to trying to close on 220 units or so pretty quickly. So those uh, were simultaneous, those two deals. So those were simultaneous. So we were working on them simultaneously. So what happened then was we're trying to close these deals and we've got our equity lined up. We're speaking with a lender and lender was all excited to do the deal. We got very close to rate locking on the deal to close the loan and suddenly the lender sent their underwriter down to look at the deal, which is, you know, as you guys know, probably one of the, la- the last things that happens before you close on a loan, it came back and said, we're not doing the deal. Ooh. Yeah. Why? So, so, well, that was our question. Why aren't you doing the deal? And they said, well, our underwriter says that, that this deal is not, doesn't fit the standards for, we were trying to do a Fannie Mae loan. So it doesn't fit the standard for Fannie Mae. And we're like, what are you talking about? So they, they sent us the report. It took us a while to get the report, but they said, you know, I said, that it, we thought maybe that there was too much CapEx in the deal or something, but it was a value-add deal. I mean, that was why we were buying it. It had a bunch of down units. We priced everything out. We knew what we were getting into. It was really going to be terrific. They, I said, well, what about the engineer's reports? It doesn't matter. We don't care what the engineering report says. Our underwriter is, is not, said we, we're not going to do the deal. So, so what's in the report? So they send us the report. The report is full of stuff like the breezeways are dirty. <laughs> there, there's a we found a golf ball had come through the window of a <laughs> and you know stuff like the hallway oh, wasn't oh, painted this yeah, week. Exa- yeah seriously it was like it was like it, the place didn't look good and they oh and by the way there are 10 down units we're like well yeah that's why we're buying the place you know we're getting a huge <laughs> discount that's why we want it it's there's a waiting list at this place with 10 down units you know we know we can rent them right away so they said doesn't matter we're not doing the deal and they just they just shut us down so dang now, so we ran around, scrambled a little bit, trying to find another lender, but we weren't able to do it within the you know the time allotted to close the deal. We were also at the time sort of too inexperienced to understand that we could have gotten more time from the seller in that kind of market. It was not; it was a buyer's market at the time. This is 2012. Right. Can I ask? So, did you lose earnest money when those deals fell through? Like you had to put up earnest money, right? So we put up earnest money. We were actually we had a financing contingency in that deal. Okay. So we were able to get out under the financing contingency. And for those who don't know what that means, like even people listening, because this applies to residential as well as commercials, what does that mean to have a financing contingency and earnest money? How does that all work? So uh, you don't see this in deals much now anymore because it's a hot market. So you, sellers have negotiated away things like this. But a financing contingency basically says if you are unable to arrange the financing that you want for this deal, you know, with best efforts, obviously, then you can get out and get your earnest money back. So it's it's a contingency, just as if if X doesn't happen, then you you can get out scot free. So we were able to get the earnest money back, but we were out a lot of out of pocket costs. Right, we had the loan application fees, we had the legal fees, we had you know engineering reports, we had a lot of cost that we were out of pocket. Hey, Jonathan, really quick, yeah. like, what, what, what are we talking about on a ballpark on this? Yeah. So we were, let's see, it was probably 
25,000 bucks on that Ooh. deal. So you're in 25K on upfront costs just to try to get the deal. That, that's, I mean, that's just to make sure that this deal's worth doing, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yes. Yeah. It's, you're, you're in. I mean, you're, you're really in these This deals. is not buying a house and spending, you know, a couple hundred bucks, a thousand bucks. I mean, this is yeah. considerably different. And can I ask, on what scale are we looking at price ranges of, of these properties? So I think that deal was a $3 million deal. Okay. So it was 102 units, I believe. And so, yeah, the, the fees are, are pretty considerable, yeah. especially, especially the lender's fees. That's, that's what really, you know, where you really get whacked is the, the lender fees. Because for, for commercial loans, you know, you're paying you know, anywhere from a fifteen dollars to $30,000 deposit that's going to cover all of the costs of engineering reports and environmental and things like that. So yeah. you, you get that, so it comes back in the deal when, they, when the loan closes and the way that we structure the deal, we were supposed to get our money out, yeah. but that didn't, that that didn't, didn't happen. happen. So we were out and then second deal collapsed also. So Same reason? No, so this time it was us getting panicky and getting out ourselves when, when really we shouldn't have, I mean, what I've learned since then is, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have pulled out of that deal. But we, we found something that we d- didn't like, which was that there were water heaters serving several units. It wasn't like one water heater per unit. And my partner thought that was a big problem. You know, now I wouldn't think it's a big problem. But at the time, she thought that was a big issue. Supposedly, you know, this is going to really affect the economics for us in some way that I'm not really sure. So... She was the one who decided to pull the trigger. You know, since I was the money guy, she was the real estate person. I deferred to her judgment on that. And, but we were now out again, our costs, you know, we got our deposits back, but we were out all of the costs, the deal costs. Yeah. So, so, between- so as your, as your financier, are these guys starting to sweat? I mean, are your money backers, you know, starting to get nervous? They're, they're in 40, 50, 30, whatever it is. You know, and you guys are out of two deals already. How does that conversation happen? Uh, that's kind of interesting to me. Well, so w- the way that we structured those deals, we financed all those costs up front our- ourselves. Okay. So our investors were not affected by that. And-, and that was a great decision to make on our part because those investors stuck with us. Right. So there's lots of different ways to structure deals. The way that we had structured deals, we weren't actually putting any of our own money into the deals themselves. But we did, you know, and, and sometimes investors don't like that. They want you to have skin in the game. Right. But our, our skin in the game was that we were fronting all these costs. So we took all of the risk of the deal not closing. Right. Uh, and, and, and those risks came to pass. Yep. No, that's great. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. I, I want to rewind, rewind really quick and then, you know, we, we got to get to this first deal already. So, so. I know it takes forever. <laughs> it? All right. So you had talked about early on brokers showing junk deals. And, and I, I just wanted you to kind of dig in a little bit more on that because I'm not sure that listeners are all familiar with that. You know, what you're saying is that if you're inexperienced or if a broker doesn't know you, the odds of you getting to the good deals are pretty low, pre-market deals, things like that, right? Is that yeah. kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not like going to a, you know, a house showing where it's on the market and anybody who wants to look at it can show up at the open house and, and make a bid. You know, and, 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 and for those people, for those listeners who are not really familiar with the kind of the gradations of real estate, you know, anything that's, that's five units or more is considered commercial. So if you're looking, you know, if you're going in, if you're in Brooklyn and you're looking at a 
four unit brownstone that's that's considered a residential building and they'll just have an open house and you, you'll show up and and look at it but you know five units and up is commercial there's no such thing as an open house sometimes they have these tours that you can get on but when you're a new investor and and nobody has dealt with you before and you don't have a record of closing deals then brokers are very wary about wasting time with you i mean these guys you know they they work on commission the commissions are big because they're big deals, but they're but the commissions are not that frequent, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't want to sink a lot of time into an investor who hasn't proven themselves. Plus, their reputation is on the line with the sellers. So they don't want to bring bring a buyer who they aren't convinced can close because, you know, God forbid that they don't close the deal. Now these guys have got egg on their face with the yeah. seller. So their reputation suffers. So if you are a new investor, you have to really do a lot of work to establish yourself with brokers. So yeah. great info. Any any quick tips? Yeah, um, I was going to ask for somebody. Thing. I mean, well, yeah, some tips that I would some real quick tips that I would give people. You absolutely have to show up professionally, right? So it's tough to walk in there and just be some guy off the street and get them to take you seriously. If you are really going to jump into the serious commercial deals, then you have to look like someone who can do these deals. So you've got to have a company set up. You've got to have a website. You've got to have business cards. You've got to have a real email address, like, you know, know your name at Gmail kind of thing. You've got to look like an entity that can do deals. Yeah. And then you need to do some extra stuff like, you got to really know what you're looking for when you come in and be able to speak intelligently about deals. So it's very helpful to put together like an ask sheet that lists exactly what kind of properties you're looking for, right? And have a due diligence list that you're going to provide to people and say up front, if you walk into a broker you've never met before and you show them a very specific ask, like on your letterhead, and you say, this is what we give everybody, this is what we're looking for, and you tell them up front, like, this is the due diligence items that we require, they are going to take you seriously because you've obviously thought through all these issues. You're not just coming in saying, oh, I want to buy a property and I've got, you know, X dollars to spend on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, what details might be on that, that list? Which list? Uh, the the due, due diligence, diligence list? list that you're going to show to the brokers, yeah. You know, I would put on that list, you know, you're going to want to have, say, Two or three years of financials for sure. You know, that's, that's the biggest one. You, you always want to have, you know, the year end financials as far back as you can go, a trailing 12. You want to have a current rent roll. You know, those are really the basics of sort of the absolute minimum that you would require to even begin to evaluate a deal. Okay, once yeah. you, once you go into contract, I mean, there's a, you know, a whole slew of other things that, that you'd want to get, but the absolute minimum is going to be those, those items. So you can start underwriting. Got it. Cool. All right. So let's let's go to that first deal. So the first two fell apart. You didn't get yep. that. How did you actually finally get a deal? So after those first two deals fell apart, we decided that we would break up our partnership. We'd had some some not dispute is too strong a word, just some disagreement about philosophy. So sort of how we treat investors and, and that's kind of those are the kinds of things. We decided that, you know, after going through this painful brain damage of these deals not working out and, yeah. and kind of banging our heads against the wall for eighteen months. We thought, okay, you know, let's, why don't we just break this up? So here I am, you know, a year and a half into this. I've left my law career behind and I'm trying to figure out what to do. 
went out to dinner with one of the guys who was going to invest with me. And I said, hey, you know, I'm really not sure what I'm going to do now. I may have to go back to practicing law. And he said, listen, don't, don't be hasty. Why don't you and I become partners and I'll back you in a new venture and just, you, know, you can go out and, and do deals. So that was how Two Bridges actually got started was with that backer. So, you know, obviously I know this is not something that everybody has an opportunity to have. And I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I you know, was in that position. This was a very old friend of mine uh, who was able to, to do this. And the same guy that I was looking at deals with in Newburgh and Albany and places like that before. Okay. Uh, but I think, you know, he hadn't offered that up front. And I think that the reason that he was able to offer that to me after a year and a half was that, you know, I spent a year and a half educating myself on my own nickel about how to do these deals. And, you know, whereas a year and a half before that, he knew that I was a guy with integrity and you know, could figure things out. Now I also had a, an education that I'd paid for and gone through some hard knocks on my own. And I think he felt comfortable at that point saying, okay, let's, let's go into business together. At that point, so when you got the company f- formed, I did all that stuff I just told your listeners that you ought to do, got all my ducks in a row, um, made it look like this was a real entity. And I had already been in contact with some guys in Charleston the year before when my old partner and I were thinking about, you know, what other markets we might want to go into. Charleston was a market that always interested me. I went down to Charleston. I knew a couple of people down there and I just asked them, hey, do you know any commercial brokers that you can introduce me to? Because I always like going in with a personal introduction. I think that that is, uh, that's another thing I always recommend to people. Like if you're going to, don't just walk cold into a broker's office and expect to get, you know, yeah. star treatment. Ask your friends for introductions. You're, you'll be amazed at who your friends know if you ask them. You'll never have the opportunity to find out who they know if you don't ask them. But you'll be amazed. Ask your friends, who do you know who's in real estate? Do you know any brokers? Do you know any commercial brokers specifically? You get that introduction first, and when you walk in, it's a completely different experience. So that's what happened to me. I, I asked some friends, who do you know? Charleston's not that big a city. You guys must know somebody. And my friends came through with a few names. So I walked in there with an introduction and people took me seriously right away. So I'd been talking to a couple guys down there for a while So and developed a really good relationship with one of them, a guy named Tyler Flesh. And by the time I started Two Bridges, you know, we'd been talking for a while. So when I started the company, that was one of the first phone calls I made. I called up Tyler and I said, hey, I'm in business for myself now. Let's go. So... Tyler and I started looking for deals, driving all over the state of South Carolina in his truck. You know, it was a little bit like a scene out of a movie. It's like <laughs> Tyler's, he was like the, me, the, the New Yorker from Brooklyn, you know, riding around with Tyler in his pickup truck, like, you know, Mr. South Yeehaw! Carolina. <laughs> well, he's really from Ohio, but still, he's been down there long enough. And, you know, it was, uh, and he's ragging on me the whole time for being, you know, some liberal from New York. And, you know, so... I had to endure that, but um, <laughs> I endure that all the time too. That, that three hours of abuse driving from one end of the state to the other, but we got to be real good friends in the process. And um, you know, it took us a while again to find deals for the same reason. You know, even though Tyler was a very well-known guy in real estate down there, you know, he was representing me, who was an unknown, and we were getting the you know just. People were showing us the listings that had been sitting around for a long time. And I'd go and look at those listings, underwrite them, and be like, this doesn't really make any sense. So finally, again, using connections, 
Tyler went through, you know, after six months of just frustration, Tyler went through one of his development partners. He does a lot of development deals himself. Asked one of his partners, like, hey, can you introduce us to, to someone? Happened that, that his partner uh, had a good family friend sort of like called her his niece. Uh, you know, not really niece, but like an old family friend he'd known since she was a kid who was a, a big broker out in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. Made the introduction for us. And again, like you get an introduction, you know, that's, that, that changes the whole game for you. We went into Kay's office with an introduction from her, you know, her father's best friend. So she took us seriously from day one. We walked in there. After doing our introduction, she said, well, hey, listen, I just got this deal yesterday. Nobody else has seen this deal before. How'd you guys go, like to go take a look? So we said, absolutely. We drove out there right away. And the minute we saw the deal, we were like, we want this. You know, this is a good deal. So we made an offer. Kay convinced the seller to take it without going to market. And we were in business. And that's how it finally happened. So from start to finish, to by the time we closed that deal in the beginning of 2014, that was almost three years. So two and a half years after I got started in the business before I finally was able to to land a deal and get it closed. Wow. And this was the longest story ever told on the Bigger Pockets podcast. So both things went forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can keep going in more detail. If <laughs> no, I do. Wanna, well, we wanna, I do want to dive in. We want to dive in on this thing. All right. So you got this deal. I'm just busting your chops, man. Obviously, you're from hey. New York. You can take it. Yeah. If I can take Tyler's abuse for three hours in the car <laughs> driving across the state of South Carolina, I can deal with anything. All right. But so be- before you dig into the numbers, I, w- I wanted to point out something real quick, if I could. So we talked. You talked a lot about the relationship aspect. I just want to like, emphasize how important that is, and oh, not yeah. just for people that are trying to buy a big apartment complexes. I mean, I'm talking about like if you need a real estate. If you're listening to this show and you want to buy a duplex or a single family house, and you don't have an agent. If you call up most random agents, they're going to think you're wasting their time. But you get an introduction, and boom, that agent takes you seriously. Same with a lender, a broker. I mean, anybody, rather, no matter how big you are. So anyway, I just want to emphasize that point that it's just rock solid advice there. Power oh, of relationships. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I I talk about that in that that uh, that thing I give away on my blog. I mean, it, that's another big aspect of it is the relationships, and not you know not just with brokers, but you got to build a team, right? You've got to. You should actually do that before you do anything else. Get your team in place. Get your lawyer, your accountant, you know, maybe a mortgage finance guy. And again, you know, find those people through personal relationships and then use them to introduce you to brokers, right? Those guys yep. know lots of brokers. If your lawyer goes out and says, hey, this guy is my client. He's looking for deals and the broker and the lawyer have a relationship. I mean, you're going to get a whole different level of treatment yep. than you get just trying to just walking off the street into somebody's sure. office. Yeah, for I sure. love it. Cool so, numbers. Let's hear them. What's what, what? What this thing look like? So that first deal was 102 units. We paid 4.1 million for it, and 1970s. You know, depending on who you talk to, B or C deal, suburban, garden style, multifamily. I think it's 16 buildings, pool, playground. You know, very very unsexy, unattractive stuff that you know i love that's the kind of stuff i love to buy got it why yeah why do you like to buy those type of things the unsexy things because you can get them cheap okay i mean you are not competing with institutional money to get those deals you're not competing with people who are doing it for vanity you know you're only competing with other investors who know what you know where the money is 
Yeah. Why? Why not? So, I, it, it's is it the price range? You, the institutional guys, it's too small, and the mom and pop guys, you know, they see, see four million, they have no idea what to do, right? Yeah, that that's a big part of it. You know, you're really in a niche, and that was one reason uh, that my my old partner had, you know, sort of chosen that niche, and that, that made sense to me. That you're not, you know, you're too big for the local folks, too small for the institutions. Yeah. Um, with that being said, if you've got you know, even at a $4 million or $5 million price point for a class A new build deal, you'll probably have more people bidding for that. You might get some smaller institutional players coming into that or, you know, sort of professional family office investors who, who won't go for the older stuff. Uh, but the older stuff really, you know, can buy at very attractive price points. They often don't need a tremendous amount of capital to, you know, to, to fix them up. Uh, I'm not talking about distressed deals. I'm just talking about market rate, uh, conventional deals. Um, they're they're just very very attractive deals. Yeah. So so this, uh, the math works out to about forty thousand, give or take per per per, per unit. Door, yeah. 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 Um, what kind of condition was this in? You said it was like a C or D uh, property, but was you know I mean what, what did the vacancy rate look like? What what did you end up doing? So it wasn't thing? it wasn't a D. It was a it was a kind of C plus deal. Okay, maybe B. I mean, the brokers would say it's a B. Uh, probably not to be truthful. Truthful about it, but um, it. So it was in good condition. I mean, we were buying it from somebody who had bought it in a distressed situation and turned it around. So that seller had put a bunch of capex into it, and um, so basically, like physically, it was in decent shape. It, it needed a little. You know, it had some things to take care of, but it was not a distressed deal right. in any sense of the word. Um, what we did discover to our chagrin, and again, this is, you know, from inexperience on that deal, I wanted to do the due diligence myself and which I think was, was really good to do it, to learn how to do it so I could oversee somebody doing it, uh, in the future. But what I missed was really drilling down on the, on the credit of the tenants who were on the side, you know, so it was full the place was occupied like 100%, but there were a lot of tenant credit files missing from the, from the uh, lease files. You're talking about like credit report, right? Credit reports. Okay. You know, <clears throat> most, when you're doing these deals, you know, if, if this, most management companies will run people through a credit check. So you won't necessarily see their credit score, but you'll see like the report that they run that'll sure. tell you like accept, deny, accept with conditions. And a lot of those were, were missing. And we later, after we closed, we found out why. Because a lot of these tenants were, you know, that the seller had just tried to fill it with bodies to make it look Ooh, good. dirty. Yes. So this is something, obviously, we watch out for now very closely. But it's something that if you're also, you know, getting into the business and you're doing a, a first deal, you really need to have some very experienced people doing the due diligence for you or with you to make sure that you don't, you know, walk into a situation like this. Well, that's a that's a great tip. I mean, you know, yeah. check check the files on the on the tenants. I mean, you know, make sure that somebody's not stuffing your your uh, your property with unqualified tenants. You know, in order to make it look better, make a you know a, potentially a pig look like a winner, right? Yeah, I mean, and we we did that. I mean, we did a full lease audit. We looked at every yeah. single lease file, but even then. You gotta, you really gotta know what you're looking for. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah, definitely. 
Okay. So let me ask you, why did this deal, was it, was it just the numbers that attracted you? Like what made you say, this is the deal for us? I, I'm going to make, you know, stake my future on this deal. I mean, did you see a lot of equity growth potential in there? Were you just looking for the cash flow, the return on your investment? What, what were you looking for? So a couple of things. Um, you know, one, literally when we drove up on the property, it, it was, it was clean. It, you know, looked good. It was attractive. The location was great. It was at the, literally, it's at the intersection of two interstate highways. And there are, you know, probably 25 factories within a mile drive of this place. So the location was excellent. The property condition was good. It looks so much better than the deals I've been looking at in, in Louisiana. You know, so what I was comparing it to when I was looking at like real C deals in Louisiana, this was just so much better. You know, there were, you know, one, one tip, if you're looking at deals, if you, if you drive a deal in the middle of the day and all the cars are there, you got to think twice about whether you want to do that deal. That's a great Cause tip. Because it, it means nobody's, oh, yeah. work, nobody's working, right? And yep. you also want to look at like, what, what condition are the cars that are there? Mm-hmm. Are they new cars? Are they old cars? You know, that, those kinds of things tell you about the property you're buying. Is there a lot of garbage around? Like, what's, what's the condition of the stuff like the playgrounds? I mean, like that, you can tell a lot about a deal just by looking at it like that. And also driving the neighborhood is very important when you're first looking at a deal. What's around it? Not just in terms of what the amenities are. What are the other houses around it look like? You know, bars on they, the windows. Yeah, exactly. Are the bars on the windows or, you know, is it, are they well kept or is it yep. a bunch of, is it cars up on blocks? You know, like all that stuff will tell you about what a neighborhood is. And if, if you don't like it, you know, tenants aren't going to like it. But so first thing was deal looked good. It looked okay. clean. Right. Tyler and I drove and Tyler, you know, guy had bought like 12,000 units of, of apartments working for a fund before. Oh. So, so he knew, you know, he knew what these deals look like. And then the fund that he worked for was buying these B and C deals. So he, he was really, this is kind of in his wheelhouse. So he had the same impression that I did, which was, this is a good deal. Then obviously the numbers look good. You know, we, we bought, we offered it at a price that we were going to be able to make, you know, 8% for our investor in the first year. So, that was the primary consideration. If you want to get into kind of like why South Carolina and, and why, you know, you asked about appreciation on the back end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we believed it, it was there, but it's not, you know, when you're doing commercial deals like this, it's not appreciation in the way that you think about it with a house. Like, you know, all the houses around it go up, so it goes up too. It's more the situation. If you've got rent growth, then... Your, your profits are rising. And if your profits are rising, then the value is going up. So when we underwrote the deal, we knew, you know, we, we believed that we were going to have good rent growth over the time that we were going to hold the deal, which we expected to be, you know, five to 10 years. So, okay. So you weren't coming into this thing thinking, I'm going to, you know, fix this up, sell it next year, make a big profit. No. You weren't flipping this thing. Not at all. I mean, it was being flipped to us. But yeah, we, that's, not our, that's not our investment style. And lots of people do that. They make a ton of money and, I think it's a great business for people who have the ability to, you know, buy deals for cash and can sit on the, not sit on it, but can go without cash flow for 18 months while they're rehabbing the deal. Yep. But there's a lot of risk in that, and that's not, that's not our profile. Okay, so you're buying this thing for a good return. Now, what about how do you, as an investor, then make money? Like you're the syndicator, you're the guy putting, and we can get into how you funded this, but mm-hmm. how do you make money in this? So the way that so we do a very classic syndication model where 
we find the deal, we tie it down, we use our funds to to get the deal under contract. And then we take it to friends and family and say who wants into the deal. So we we form a an LLC that owns the deal and we are paid a couple of ways. We charge some fees like an acquisition fee. We charge a small management fee for managing the deal and then we get a piece of the upside of the deal after paying a preferred return to the investors. Okay. So they're so they're guaranteed, you know, depending on the deal, 7%, 8% each year and after they've been paid that then we can participate in the profits. Okay. So that's how we that's how we make money. Okay, cool. So I want to I want to move on because I know we could spend forever on this one deal, but I want to move to the other ones. You've done multiple deals since this, correct? How many total have you done now? So we did. We've done three more since then. Okay, we've got four hundred units, just a little over four hundred since then. You know, altogether. Okay, and I mean, were all the other ones the exact same? Do you use the same partner? Um, anything different about the other deals? Well, so each deal has got a different group of investors in it. So, um, I mean, there's overlap between the deals, but they're all. They all have a different lineup of investors. The structure is exactly the same. Okay. And they're all in the same area of South Carolina. So they're in the western part of the state, which is called the upstate. That's the bit of South Carolina that runs along I-85 between Atlanta and Charlotte. So, hey, Jonathan, you said you have a different lineup of investors, but is it, it's you and your partner are getting finding the deals, putting up all the upfront stuff, doing all the due diligence, and then you're going out and, and finding a, a new unique set potentially of partners, uh, money partners for the syndication. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, okay. for day to day, it's actually just me. So my partner is just a silent partner. Okay. So I'm the one who's out there looking for deals. And I've got like, you know, Tyler working with me and people, you know, now we've got a network of brokers to help find properties. But, you know, my role is putting the deals together then going out trying to find the money to do the deals. So, you know, once we've got them under contract. Okay. And uh, you're, you're still doing brokers. I'm assuming the same thing. You're getting all these deals through broker relationships. We, we get them through brokers, but, you know, so the magic is that once you close a deal with a broker and they, they perceive that you're able to do more deals, mm-hmm. then they start bringing you the off-market stuff. Yeah. So we've done, I mean, I guess you could consider that first deal an off-market deal because we were the only ones ever to see it. After that, I think of the four deals we've done, one of them was like a real market situation. The rest of them were situations where they, the brokers brought us the deal and said either you're the only one seeing this or it's you and two other groups that are seeing this. So maybe there'd be a small bidding process, but it wasn't like, you know, we were getting them definitely pre-market or off-market. Okay. Got it. Got yeah. it. Hey, quick question that popped into my mind. Since you're the only guy at the firm with your silent partner, presumably these these properties are being managed by in-house management. We do third-party management. Use third-party management. Yeah, okay. yeah. So we okay. have local third parties that we use to do the day-to-day. And then uh, you know, it sounds like at least on the first deal, it didn't really necessarily need a lot of work. You didn't have to do too much turnaround on the units. Are, do you have the same profile on all the buildings that you're buying? Is it all kind of the same? You know, they're pretty much in decent condition or ready. Yeah. So our model is to look for deals where we can, where our value add comes in our management of the properties. So we we don't we look for deals that don't require a whole lot of capex. We look for deals that are in good shape when we buy them, that are stabilized and you know fully occupied when we buy them. 
And the way that we add value to the situation is that we're going to run them more efficiently than the previous owner because we're buying from mom and pops often who don't have economies of scale. They may have just one property. Or if we're buying them from a flipper, you know, their model is different. They, they are looking to do it very fast. If they're good at what they're doing, you know, they, they do a good job vetting the tenants. We'll put them in it like slightly below market rents because they want to fill the place up fast. Right. So they're they're leaving money on the you know leaving meat on the bone for you that way. But yeah. we also because we our our model is to buy properties near other properties that we own, and that way we can manage them together. We can share staff. We can bid out contracts. There's a lot of things that you can do to save cost, which you can't do if you've only got one property in a market. So we actually are able to drive down costs when we buy them. And there's obviously we also are going to be more aggressive about pushing rents than, you know, mom and pop might be. Right. Uh, so. so you're, you're outsourcing, I mean, but you're pretty much outsourcing everything. I'm assuming any type of work, you've probably got some kind of firm that you use. You don't, you know, obviously don't have in-house contractors that are doing stuff, uh, handymen or anything like that. It's all just. Well, so, you know, on staff with the management company, these, when you've got big properties like this, you have to have on-site staff. So we've got people who, you know, full-time maintenance guys, who are turning units. Uh, a lot of it gets bid out, though, you know, or, or contracted out, painting, carpet cleaning, that sort of thing. Yep. We'll get contracted out to another third party, and the management company is overseeing it. But there is in-house, in-house leasing staff, in-house management, in-house maintenance. Got it. Okay, so they're, they're living at the property and, and taking care of that stuff. Now, who... I'm curious about... Because I've never done anything this big. You know, my largest is 24 units. So yeah. how do you deal with... I mean, I'm thinking, let's say a tenant calls and they've got, yeah. I don't know, some big problem, water leaking through the ceiling or whatever. You know, do you, do you even hear about that? Does the onsite maintenance hear about it? Does the manager hear about it? How involved are you on those kind of things? I ideally should never get involved in that sort of thing. That's okay. the management company's job. So, the, you know, they're on site, they deal with all of the maintenance issues. They come to me when they need to approve a big ticket item. So they're, you know, in our contract, it talks about you know, how much, up to what dollar amount they have the discretion to just go do on their own and what they need to come to me for approval for. But nobody is calling me, you know, except occasionally, and it hasn't happened for a long time, fortunately, but, you know, some tenant will get upset at the management company for some reason and then they'll find out, you know, our, our yep. phone number and call us up and and complain about the management company. But... That that hasn't happened in quite a while. That happens. That's happened a couple times to me, where they'll call up and complain about the manager. Like they'll find my number somehow, somewhere, but yeah. then they don't realize that like our management company is me. I mean, like <laughs> we do a pretty good job of differentiating it, so they don't know that I'm. In, but they call up the owner of the property, and then right. uh, I'm like, okay, well, you know, like they don't know that my wife is the one <laughs> that they're dealing with. Like cause we keep it very separate. They do now. They do now if they're listening to this show. Hey, Jonathan, really quickly, what kind of budgetary discretion do you give to the management company where they don't need to come to you? It's, it's something like $500. You know, under that, they can just spend it. And over that, they need to get my approval. Got it. And also, what do you pay for management on a percentage? Like when you, when do you underwrite a deal? I actually have a couple, a couple questions about your underwriting. So when you're underwriting sure. a deal, which for those who don't know, it means basically doing the numbers on a large property when you're underwriting it. Do you, like, what do you, what do you figure for management total cost? Uh, and then what do you typically do for CapEx? Like the big capital expenditures. So we underwrite 4% of gross okay. for 
uh, property management. Okay. You know, when you when you when you start getting bigger properties, you're able to get better rates. But uh, you know, you're 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 paying directly for payroll yourself. Okay, so, yeah. So the guys so, that live on staff are not part of that four percent. Yeah, exactly. So okay. the four percent is going for back office operations like your accounting and stuff like that, and then you know the management company's profit. But you're paying for the staff salaries. You're, you're paying for everything. So that four percent is just you know for for accounting and and that sort of thing and oversight. You know, they they usually have a layer of management over the property manager. You know that the property manager is reporting to. So you know that your four percent is going towards their salaries. If you get even bigger, you can even negotiate this even further down, you know, 3% or, or lower if you, you get you know, big enough. But then in terms of CapEx, I mean, we don't have any specific, you know, like per door that we spend. Okay. It really depends on the deal. So we have ranged from zero that we put in up front for CapEx to, you know, 150000 for uh, a property that we thought needed more work. So it really depends on the specifics of the deal. When we go to look at a property, we try to bring an engineer or a contractor with us for the first look just to get an idea from them as to what they think we're going to need to spend. And then that's part of the formal due diligence process. So when we send in the management company to do their due diligence where they do the lease file, you know, they, they walk all the apartments, they get up on the roofs, you know, they look at everything then they come back with a report to us that says, okay, this is, you know, what your CapEx is, you know, and we always tell them like, be anal about it, give us the worst case scenario. And then we make a decision as to, you know, what we really think we need to take care of that makes from, sense. That, from that list. Yeah. And on that on that note, then what about future? And maybe this is part of what you kind of just said, but future things like, you know, I got, I mean, future CapEx, maybe appliances, did you just wrap those all into repairs and you have a certain percentage for that typically or you know for new roofs new siding new plumbing eventually i mean just all those like the reserves essentially it's like very loaded things. questions brandon i know i'm i'm because these are things that i struggle with in trying to buy bigger properties i'm like what do i you know do i set aside 200 a month per unit yeah, for those bigger things I, yeah. yeah so you know what we have done so we finance that out of cash flow the ongoing sort of routine sure. repair work we the the great thing about you know having your management company go and do the due diligence is that they will actually go through and kind of give you an estimate on everything in every unit and an idea of how long they think it'll last but you know so you can get an idea going in like okay we're going to have to replace you know 13 stoves in the next year mm, yeah. you know and just sort of like like reserve for that but the when you when you get a commercial loan they require you to set aside reserves. In fact, they, they usually they control the reserves, You're, so they're sitting at the bank. So we kind of use that as our guideline for how much we're probably going to have to spend on CapEx. I mean, they, the banks go through, with, you know, they send in CBRE or someone like that to do a really thorough engineering report, and that will actually come back with their estimate of how much CapEx this property is going to need over the next 10 years. And... So they make you reserve every month a certain amount that you know that they hold on to. The the bitch about it is that they've got the money and you've got to spend it and you don't get it back until you show them receipts. Yeah. So you actually have to spend the money first and then get it from them and it takes, you know, thirty days to get the money and it's it's a big you know creates a liquidity problem sometimes, but sure. Yeah, makes Interesting. sense. 
And uh, by the way, and just to clarify on that, so do they tell they tell you how much they're going to make you pay in reserves? You don't get to make your own choice on that. No, no, they'll, they'll tell you. It's like, this one's three hundred bucks per unit per year. Okay, is there an average that you've typically seen, or is it it's around three hundred? It's always two fifty to three fifty. Okay, that's always what I've heard too. Yeah. Two fifty to three fifty. Yeah. So it's it's more. I mean, tens recently. The, the better the deal you do, you know, the better the condition it is, the lower, obviously. So the, the deals we've done recently have been lower. We, you know, the deals we bought have been in really good shape. We bought them, so it'll be two fifty. Awesome, typically. awesome. All right, Jonathan. Cool. Before we move on to the fire round, we got one last really, really quick question, which is: Looking back, what what would you do differently? You've got these, you know, four properties you went through. You know, several years of just trying to figure it out. Would you change anything, or would you go through the whole process the same way? I mean, there's a number of things I would do differently. I, I think, to be honest with you, if I were starting all over again, I would start with smaller deals. Um, they're just easier to take down. You, you don't need as many partners. You don't. I mean, we haven't even gotten into like financing these deals and all of the stuff you have to jump through to get a bank. To we're to out of time, so we're not going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. I would definitely start with smaller deals. Like I wish I had been starting with, you know, twenty unit, twenty five unit deals, um, and and kind of build up from there slowly. I'll leave it at that. Okay. No, that's great. It's great. Yeah. It, it makes sense. I mean, biting biting off a hundred unit property on your first first go is, uh, I I can't even imagine. It's it's got to be a whole lot to to absorb. I mean, I have to say that the the amount of work that goes into doing a deal is the same. Pretty much, no matter how big the deal is, is so it's really other considerations like how you finance it, you know, what what the bank is going to make you do, and and just how many partners you have to bring in to finance it. That that's where the real work comes in. It's not so much on the due diligence or, you know, even get negotiating the loan documents or anything like that. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Awesome. Awesome. I, I love digging out on this stuff because I mean, obviously this is a little higher level show, uh, but you know we want like this is where a lot of our listeners are headed. Is these questions. So I think I, I think it's fantastic. Thank you, uh, Jonathan. Yeah. So, but before we get out of here, we got two more famous sections of the show. The first one being the fire round. It's time for the fire round. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's VP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, 
Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Now let's get to this fire round. Number one. By the way, these questions come direct from the Bigger Pockets forums. We're going to fire them at you. Number one, should I just invest, invest my cash in a REIT, like a real estate investment trust for now, until my credit's better? Or should I just buy something anyway and try to make it work? That's a tough question. It, I w- First, I was going to say absolutely not, but then you threw in the little credit issue twist. Mm, yeah. You know, that, that obviously, it depends on how much money you're talking about. I mean, if you've got enough money to buy a small deal for, for cash and you don't have to worry about the credit, then maybe that's the way to go. I, people are always asking me all the time, like, oh, why shouldn't I just put my money into a REIT? Why should I, yeah. not, you know, why should I not give you, why should I, why should I give you my money when I could just put it into a REIT? And I say, well, because if you're buying a REIT, you're buying a stock. You know, the stock market crashes, your REIT's going to crash, and it doesn't really matter what the underlying value of the assets are because everybody thinks of it like a stock. So. Right, yeah. If you want to buy real estate, buy real estate. That's my advice. I like Good it. answer. There you yeah. go. Cool. What's the best way to find insurance on a large multifamily? Is it, is it any more complicated than insuring your house? A little bit, yeah. To find insurance, it's the same you know, as everything else we've talked about. Get some personal introductions to an insurance broker if you don't have one already. You know, you're not going to be able to just go down to your Allstate guy in the corner. You know, you've got to talk to you – know, your lender will be – or your mortgage broker, preferably, would be the someone to talk to. The lenders have very strict requirements as to how much uh, insurance you need and, and the quality of the insurance, so you're, you're a lot more limited. So it is, sure. it is definitely more difficult. Okay. Yeah, cool. Number three, and this is a general, not just commercial, but just general real estate. I'm afraid to, quote, pull the trigger. Any tips? Do you want to sit on the sidelines forever or do you want to get into this business? I mean, at some point, you have to be willing to take a risk. There, you know, no deal is perfect. I, I certainly, I mean, I could tell you about all the stuff that went wrong with my first deal after we closed. You just have to be prepared to roll with the punches. But if you never pull the trigger, you'll never get into it. So you, at some point, you just got to just gotta do it. Right Boom. on. There you go. There you go. Last question. 
Should I stay away from mixed use for my first deal? So I'll be honest and say I don't really know anything about mixed use. Okay. Because I only do one thing, which is multifamily. Yep. But that being said, the more stuff you throw into a deal, the more complicated it gets. And why would you want to do a really complicated deal for your first deal? Yeah. You know, so I would just try to keep it as simple as possible. There's enough moving parts with this business. Learn, you know, you got to underwrite two different kinds of assets with a mixed use deal. So just pick one that you like and do that. Cool. I like that answer. I, like it. I think it's great. Awesome. All right. Let's wrap this thing up with the world famous. Famous for. All right. These questions are asked every single week to every single guest. So we're excited to hear what yours are, Jonathan. Number one, what is your favorite real estate related book? So I've got a couple actually. Okay. One of them is going to be real bizarre for you guys. Just shows is that the nerd. title? It's called Real Bizarre. <laughs> actually, actually that right, that's that's the book I'm writing right now. <laughs> real Bizarre yeah, with Jonathan um, Jonathan Twombly. That's right. So for your real basic real estate knowledge stuff, I read a book years ago before I got into this business that really opened my eyes as to how these things work. And it's called, I got to get the exact title here. Hold on. I did write this down. It is the Wall Street Journal's Complete Real Estate Investing Guidebook by David Crook. Cool. That was really simple, straightforward, and no kind of get rich gimmickry at all. It's just, it's just the nuts and bolts that you need to know and explains you know, how buying property for investment is different than buying a house. So yeah. that, that was really helpful. Now, the geek in me really likes a book called Logistics Clusters. This is, I'm probably the only person who is ever going to buy this book. <laughs> but that, that is really, really interesting because it talks about how things like inland ports you know, or, or big logistics clusters where you've got goods like going from train to truck or you know, anytime you've got goods going from one mode of transportation to another, plane to truck, plane to boat, whatever it is, just generate crazy jobs. And so if you are looking to figure out where, what market you should go into and you see that there's an inland port near the place you're looking, you're on the right track. Nice. I like it. Good advice. The book sounds really fascinating. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it's actually really cool, but that's, yeah, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm a dweeb, so. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that'll be my, my second question, which is what do you do for fun? And you could tell us all about Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. But <laughs> before we get there, <laughs> favorite business book? So uh, I really like a book called The War of Art by War Stephen of Art. Yeah, The War of Art. I just bought that on Kindle. Did you? Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but it's on my Kindle. It is an awesome book. I mean, this, you know, for anybody who is an entrepreneur, you know, you don't have a boss standing over you trying to make you do stuff. And you've got to figure out how to day in, day out, you know, get in there and get your shit done. This is the book about how to do that. It's just, it's a great book. I read it. I try to read it over and over and over again, like several times a year. That's That's awesome. yeah. Nice. I, I've heard so much good stuff about that book. It's one been on my radar for a while now, so I finally picked it up. I'm glad yeah, go home and my employees, tonight. Brandon, is reading <laughs> that book all I, about his crappy boss. I, that's all I read is books on how to you know get around my boss. Four-hour work week, right? <laughs> yeah, that was a gem. <laughs> that's a great book. <laughs> all right, Dave, what do you do for fun for, for, for reals? I know we were actually geeking out earlier about Star Wars before the show, but what are your hobbies? Yeah, well, so unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of time for hobbies. I spend a lot of time with my kids. I've got two young daughters, and they're really my hobby. I, I just like go. to hang around Brooklyn with those two. Oh, cool. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. I never actually did ask you that. So you live still in New York despite living investing. Is that correct? 
Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I live and work in Brooklyn, so ride my bike to work. Brooklyn. Awesome. So you're Knicks, the Knicks or tree. Nets? Boston Celtics. Oh damn! Get off <laughs> my show. Wow. Moving uh, on. Can we finish this up already? Uh, last question. Here comes. Here comes. Jonathan, what do you believe sets apart the successful real estate investors out there from those who give up, fail, or never get started? Well, okay. That's a, that's a pretty big question, right? I, I think that persistence is the key. It just, it just really comes down to that. Like, yeah. are you going to, like I did, I mean, I stuck it out for three years before I finally got that first deal closed, right? And lost a buttload of money along the way and it was like self-financing out of savings. I mean, it wasn't pleasant, right? But you just have to stick it out and you got to make a decision that you're going to do it, pull the trigger and just do it. And when, you know, when those deals knock you down, you just keep going and figure out the problem, fix it, and then go do another one. That's really all there is to it. I mean, I don't want to sound simplistic, but you know, I, I think persistence is like 90% of success in business. And, the, and then 10% is like not being an idiot. That's so, um, <laughs> nice. be a quote right know, there. Oh, yeah. That. So, I mean, don't come up with a dumb idea. Do your homework. You know, don't get into dumb deals. But other than that, it's really just about, about persisting when life comes at you. I love it. I love it. Well, cool. Well, awesome. Josh, awesome. That's great. Okay, cool. Before we let you go, Jonathan. How can people find out more about you? You've got a website. Tell us about that. Uh, how else would you like people to reach out? Yeah. Uh, so there are a couple ways that you can get in touch with me. If you would like to follow my blog, that is called The Mortar, as in bricks and mortar. And, and the, the blog itself is, the, the URL is themortarblog.com. So go there, sign up. Here's a little bit of a shameless plug. On, on my website, on my blog, I actually have a free giveaway about how to show up for brokers. Okay. So, um, if you want to go to the mortar blog, um, they can they can download that for free. And if you're interested in what we're actually doing on the investment side, then come to Two Bridges Asset Management to our website, which is Two Bridges spelled out and M G M T for Management dot com. So Two Bridges Management dot com. If you Google it, you'll find us. Fantastic. Awesome. 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 Cool. Well, thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Obviously, and guys, you can check him out on the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 172. That's biggerpockets.com slash show 172. Any questions or anything like that that you have for Jonathan, you can leave there or obviously catch up with him around uh, the other ways. So uh, th- thanks again so much, Jonathan, and we'll, uh, we'll see you around. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. My pleasure. Hey, thank you. Take care. All right, big thanks to Jonathan and also a big shout out to Bodie McBoatface. Thank you so much. We do appreciate your support. You got nothing on that? Nothing to say? I got nothing. I got nothing on that. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I'm confused because you, you've never been rendered like speechless. That's, I was reading something. I was distracted. I didn't even know what you were oh, saying. Oh, so you weren't even paying attention. Paying we're attention we're supposed to, you. to be professional recording a podcast. I don't know what you're talking about. I was reading about Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. <laughs> I heard the word, but I don't know what you're what you're All right. Anyway, big that was a cool show, man. <laughs> that was a cool show. I uh I don't know. I I think it takes I don't know guts, we'll say, guts. to jump in to, you know, a 100 unit property for your first one. That said, it just shows it didn't happen overnight either. It wasn't like he read a book on investing in, you know, commercial properties and tomorrow he bought one. So. Right. 
It just yeah. shows it's a journey that people go down. And rather than going through 10 years of buying Detroit, he just jumped right into buying a hundred new hundred unit. So. Wow. So you're now ripping on Detroit. I'm not oh, ripping on him. I'm just that's saying. That's twice today. No. You've mentioned it twice today. You know, it, I was just referring to the city name. You're the one that's making a derogatory statement about that. I, I was just nothing. saying. Would I ever, Josh? You had a tone. Ever say, you had a tone. I, I had a tone. You had a tone. Wow. You, you are it. almost a father. <laughs> you're like, you've, you've transformed. I mean, you know, I'm now, turning into now, dad right now. Yep. You're dad dar. I got, I got hair coming out of my ears now. It's uh, like, you know what? They're, they make these electronic trimmers from Panasonic. They're awesome. Wow, nice. I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> How do I know? I don't know. Well, you know. Weird, dad. Yeah, strange. Anyway, I did I actually say that out loud? Whoops. I don't know. Uh, for 100,000 people, something like that. Oh, uh, well. Right. Nobody's anyway. listening at this point anyway. They're gone. <laughs> we could say whatever Guys. we wanted to. We could just say like swear words right now, just nonstop. And nobody would ever know. Nice, nice. All right, guys, listen. Seriously, thank you for listening. Uh, please do not vote in Bodie McBoatface for, for your presidential candidate. Uh, I'd prefer you write in me. Josh um, Dorkin for president. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I, I don't want that job. I th- when I was a kid, I always wanted that job. But like, I did too. Man, that, you know that. Well, it's because we were kids with Bill Clinton as president. That was a lot. Like those are good times. Those yeah, were, you know it's different now. Yeah, now no. it's just. Not just stress. They all turn just gray hair and they get yeah, grumpy and stuff. Terrible. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Like we said in the in the upfront, uh, the Bigger Pocket Show is now on the Google Play Store. So please, if you uh, have not yet already done so, you can check it out there. We'd love ratings and reviews there. Love ratings and reviews on iTunes. And and otherwise, please spread the word. Let people know about the show. Yeah, the more people that listen, obviously, the more people that can learn. And frankly, you know, people have this selfish mentality. I'm a lot of people like, oh, well, I don't want to share it because I don't want them to know. And you know, the more people you share it with, the more potential partners you have. I mean, if you can get like all your buddies to get into real estate investing, think about your your network of of folks who now know what they're doing, who potentially have access to cash and things like that and resources. It just behooves you if you're a real estate investor to spread the word. So please do that. And and lastly, of course, if you're not already a member of Bigger Pockets, please do jump in. It's it's an amazing community with now as at, at the time of uh, your listening, over five hundred thousand members, which is crazy. It's crazy. So congratulations uh, thanks again. on five hundred thousand. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats, Bigger Pockets. Woo! That I'm Josh Dorkin. Signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio. Simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Before we do, let's bring in today's sponsor. All right, today's show is sponsored by Bodie McBoatface. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. 
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.